0: It's lovely being with you all. Um, I mean that from the bottom of my heart. And um, it's, there's such love for the Lord in this place, but also what I see is such love for one another. And that's a, that's a wonderful thing to see. It means so much to God, to Jesus, when, we, when that's in His church. And so, just it's just great to be among you and to sense that and to to feel that. Um, felt like the Lord um, wanted to just say a few things, just briefly, prophetically. Um, if that's okay. I felt like. The image of the, the, the well bubbling up that Jesus spoke to a, a number of times, John chapter 4, John chapter 7, this idea of this well springing up. Um, it's a wonderful picture of what it is to be a disciple, this life of God living in us by his spirit. I feel that like the Lord wants to draw attention to that to you corporately and wants, wants, to just, wants that to be an image that you live with, um, that you would do all that you do coming out of that internal flow of the spirit. Um, And and there's a a deep well, as we were worshipping and praising, it's clear there's a deep, deep well that's been dug here um, through um, years of prayer and years of faithful service to the Lord and just his grace at the end of the day is all about his grace, isn't it? But I just sense there's a depth here. And and he wants to encourage you in that way. Also, as I was traveling up here, I felt like the Lord said to me that the Lord wants you to know and wants to remind you. I don't know, it, it felt like in the sense that he'd said it to you before, but I don't know, but there's a sense in which you are called to be... Um, that. Every church has its own different contributions to make in the whole body, but prophetically, that there is—you are called to be a, a prophetic voice as a church. That you are, that you are called to be a church that that soars and sees the birds—the bird's eye view to see sees that o- overall plan. That your your primary calling is not to be simply those that are in the coal face doing the work, but that you're able to have a sense of what God is doing in the wider picture. I feel like the Lord wants to. Particularly stir those of you that prophetically, particularly prophetically gifted. Maybe there's some prophets in the in the mix here, and wants to wants to bring bring a. Bring a sense of um, importance and emphasis and underlining to that, that you are to be a church to, with a with a bird's eye view and being able to understand big big matters that are going on and be able to speak into things and not just not just give give the assessment of what's in front of the face, but what's going on in a, in a bigger sense, if that makes sense. And also, finally, I don't know what the church unit is like around here, but also just feel like the Lord wants to underline that you guys have a role to play in in uh, in, in local churches coming together fruitfully Um, around here I don't know what that's like it seems to be different wherever you go but I just felt that was something that maybe the Lord wanted to provoke you with and and to to maybe bring to the agenda in a fresh way that there's there's the Lord is doing something in church unity um, up and down the nations different from what it was years ago I mean I'm not that old at all but I've been a Christian 25 years (laughs) But I remember church unity back in the day was painful. I mean, it was just lowest common denominator, skirt around the issues, tolerate, tolerate the times together, it's different. Now God is a grassroots thing God is doing, and I just wonder if there's something that there he wants to emphasize for you. So those were the things that came to my mind, and I hope that I let you guys weigh them and do what you do, but I wanted to just faithfully bring what I felt was on my heart. Um, I am going to speak about prayer um, tonight, and um, we all know, don't we, that prayer is not easy. We all know that. All right, prayer is not an easy thing to do. The Bible makes it clear that we do not know how to do it properly. (laughs) We do not know how to pray as we ought. Okay, So we do not know how to pray properly. Hallelujah, that the Holy Spirit helps us. But we don't know how to do it uh, naturally. We lapse quickly into formulas. We lapse quickly into just doing things by row or, I don't know, this worked last week. It was really exciting, so let's do this again. And we, we lapse quickly into that I want you to just take one minute turn to the person next to you what do you find hardest about prayer and I want you to be honest there's certain things we're not allowed to say all right I want you to be honest what do you find hardest about prayer Okay, next person, switch it round. Next person. Okay. All right. Now, let me just say this. Having a good doctrine around prayer Certainly will not solve all of the difficulties, but will most certainly help. Okay? So, having understanding, really grasping, understanding good doctrine about prayer, it won't solve all the difficulties, but it will help because I think a lot of the time, the the difficulty beneath the difficulty, so there's plenty of difficulties in praying, but sometimes the difficulty beneath the difficulty is this lurking doubt, does this really change things? Does it really? I want to be honest about that. I want to talk tonight about, does prayer really change things? Now, where we tend to come down in our kind of churches is because we're really strong on the sovereignty of God. We love the sovereignty of God, don't we? We love it that God is sovereign, that he is in charge. We love it that he knows the end from the beginning. We love that we find immense comfort in that. We love it that God is never taken by surprise. We love it that the Lord reigns. We love that we find immense comfort in that. And rightly so. Rightly so. But sometimes I believe that if we, don't, if we don't allow that to be fully understood in a, in a truly biblical sense, in the dynamics of what we see in the Bible, it can lead you down to some unhelpful roads. It can lead you down to some assumptions, some conclusions that can actually hamstring your prayer life. Now, I'm going to just unpack what I mean by that just so you can follow me. It's not going to be, um, it's not going to be super academic, but you will need to think a little bit. Is that all right? Okay, cool. Um, So basically you tend to get two camps of people around prayer or here are the two caricatures. Number one is this, God God is sovereign, he knows the end from the beginning. So essentially, do you know what? It's all mapped out. So prayer doesn't really change things but it does change us. Right, so when we pray, situations don't really change because it's kind of all kind of you know it's predestined. But you know what? Prayer really changes us. So when we pray, um, God deals with our heart. God deals with our attitudes. God changes our perspective. Now, amen to when we pray, God changes us. Amen to when we pray, God changes our heart. Amen to when we pray, God changes our perspective. My contention is this: that is not the whole story because we can get to that place where you can it can become caricatured and you end up saying thing, you end up saying things like well do you know what it didn't act, what I was praying for I didn't actually get it but God really changed me now sometimes that's great because that's exactly what needed to happen but if that's always the answer what it can do it can lead you to a place where you think at the end of the day do you know what when i pray it doesn't actually seem to affect the things i'm praying into I get changed, praise God for that, but I actually care about these things I'm praying about. What happens here? And what can begin, it can begin to this kind of sense of God's sovereignty can in a funny way tend to lead somewhere where where maybe biblically it shouldn't go. The other emphasis is this: is that God changes. God changes things. God changes situations. God, when we pray, things change. And really, you know, all this talk about God changes me is really just a cop out. You know, for, the, for we're just making excuses for unanswered prayers. And we need to pray through and press through because God wants to change, and He's not going to do it without our prayers. Now, there's a there's a lot to be said for that kind of zeal, that kind of faith, and that kind of thing. But it can leave you a bit cold in the sense of, oh my goodness, the whole of the universe is upon my shoulders. And my prayers, it's kind of, you end up like a sovereign humanity deal and you're like, oh, oh boy, and that, can, that, that has its own problems with it. And I want to just try and help you tonight. I feel that we're all clear on this. I feel that I might be wrong, but you know, I know our, our movement of churches is fairly well. We're pretty strong on the sovereignty of God. We're pretty clear and secure on that. And that's a wonderful thing. I do not want to undo that. But what I do want to do is I do want to kind of just maybe bring a helpful challenge from the perspective that, you know what, the Bible does teach that as we pray, things change. It does teach that. And I want to show you that and help you with that. You see, let me just help you with some of the logic. So this camp over here tends to say things like this. God is sovereign, therefore, number one, he is all-knowing. He is all knowing. He knows all things. He knows the end from the beginning. Therefore, it's kind of all done every day of my life, written in his book before one of them came to be. Oh, whoa, he knew I was going to do that. You know, it kind of goes down that road, you know, and it's like, well, and that, you know, and it's like, well, what if I, oh, we knew, yeah, you know, and it kind of gets a bit weird. But he knows all things And, and what it can do, it can lead to this kind of fatalism. It can lead to this kind of sense of, well, what's the point? If I was going to pray, you knew I was? If I wasn't, you knew I wasn't going to? But, that, but then he planned that, and you get into a really weird space. He is all-knowing, but do you know what the Bible also teaches? This: The Bible teaches that he reveals his will to his people. He reveals his plans to his people. He reveals what's in his heart to his people so that they might pray. You see, when the people of God in the Old Testament went into exile... God says, you're going to go into exile 70 years and then I'm going to bring you back. And we find when Daniel discovers, hey, you know what? He counts up, he discovers it's been been 70 years now. What does he do? He doesn't just pack his suitcase and kind of wait on this Babylonian doorstep for 70 years. All right. What does he do? He seeks God. You see, God has revealed his will. God has revealed what he wants to do. Daniel's response is fervent intercession. And we read that through that fervent intercession, there's all kinds of things going on in the unseen realm. Extraordinary things, things way beyond our understanding. But things move and an angel comes and says things like, you know, I came in response to your utterance. And it leaves you with these questions of what if Daniel hadn't prayed? You know, you think, I don't want to go there. But wow, we're thankful that he did. Because he understood that God reveals his purposes to his people so that his people can rise up, believe him, trust him, act in faith, pray. That's the dynamic that in his sovereignty he determines. doesn't undermine his sovereignty at all, but it fills it out and gives us a sense of, okay, all right, there's an entrustment here going on. This is for real. This is God's, God's revealed, for example, that he wants none to perish. But all to come to knowledge of the truth. Therefore, what do we do? We pray for the harvest. We pray for salvation. We don't, we don't get we don't get we don't get into that caught up caught up in that predestination thing. Thank God for election and the comfort it brings. And don't ask me to explain it. But the same book says it's his will that none should perish. Therefore, I will pray my heart out and hold him to that promise. You see, that's biblical response. In his, in his omniscience, in his knowing of all things, he says, I'm sharing with you what is in my heart because I want a people that will co-labor with me. People that will do this thing. Sometimes we say things like, on this side, well, he's all powerful. He's all, he's all authoritative. Therefore, kind of like, you know, really, honestly, at the end of the day, what, what role could we possibly have? It's almost an insult to have a sense that we could, in some way, be meaningfully involved. He is omnipotent, he has... All power. Yes, he has all power. Absolutely has all power. But he created us to exercise dominion on his behalf. That's what we're created for. That we would be co regents That we would represent his kingship. That, that his desire is to manifest his kingly glory through those he made in his image. And so you see there's a sense in, on our part there's this calling under his sovereignty to manifest kingly dominion. What does that look like? Well it looks like all kinds of things but part of it is praying. And a big part of it is saying, do you know what? When we see things at play that we know are not the perfect will of God, when we see things at play that we know God hates—arrogance, oppression, and the like—that we begin to pray. And we don't just—we don't just—it's not just pleading prayers; it's authoritative prayers. We begin declaring what the will and purpose of God is in this situation. We begin to throw our stones at those Goliaths. We begin to take authority in prayer. Why? Because because we are—that's—that's—we've been raised up seated with Christ. There's an authority, a dominion that we learn to exercise in preparation for the future age where we will reign with him in that new heavens and a new earth. But we're growing into that now. We're being prepared for that now. That's what we take that on. It's an, it's an incredible thing. It's, it's, it's real. It's not, it's not make believe. Oh, yeah, but we know He's sovereign, really. You know, there's something, there's something almost risky, it seems, about the way God entrusts genuine authority to, to people. You can see when it goes wrong, the reality of the consequences when it's abused and used wrongly. Imagine a people that actually woke up to what had been entrusted to them. Imagine a people that said, you know what, we're going to rise up. We're the people of God. And we're going to exercise His rule through serving. We're going to exercise his rule through laying down our lives. We're going to exercise his rule through praying fervently and sacrificially and persistently. We're going to exercise his rule by speaking up for those without a voice. Now that is what I'm talking about. None of that undermines in any way the sovereignty of God. In his sovereignty, he has ordained that. In his sovereignty, he's made it clear that is what he wants. Of course, he could have done the whole thing himself without us, but he's chosen to do it with us. The final thing on the argument is, is that he transcends time and space. You know, he's, he's, he's sovereign, therefore he transcends time and space. Therefore he's kind of outside all of this mess. He's, he's outside of it. And we know, hallelujah, praise God, that he is not part of creation. That he is the creator. That he does, in a sense, exist outside of it. We believe that. We believe that it's true. We believe that that's the only way. He, how else can he know the end from the beginning? Absolutely he is transcendent and sovereign. And yet you know what? The Bible is clear that he relates to humanity within time and space. In a, he, really. Not just like pretend, really. He relates to us in time and in space. Here and now, he deals with us in a real way. It's, it's mysterious, but it's not make-believe. It's not pretend. It's not just, we'll do that so it appears that way. It's real. He deals with us. In time and space, therefore, what what we do, where we at, where God has put us, with our time, etc., etc., is real. God wants to meet us in that place. When we gather like this, when you guys gather to pray over these forty days, God wants to meet with you in time and space and make a difference to what He's doing among you. This is His heart. This is His will. And there's one there's one thing I want to just focus on for the last bit of our time together, just to kind of just to sort of really get under your skin because I love you. Uh, Is this does God change His mind? Does God change His mind? This is a fascinating one. I've done some study on it. Um, how does His sovereignty work? How, how dare I do this in ten minutes? But I will. Well, He's ruling over all. He knows the end from the beginning. But my contention is this: is that He is absolutely affected and moved by the prayers of humble Christians. That His heart is touched in time and space by the fervent, humble prayers of devoted believers. I found two clear references in the Bible that says God doesn't change his mind. I can get these notes to you later if Neil decides they're not heretical. and uh, So don't worry about flicking, flicking. I'll do some flicking for a few minutes. But Numbers 23 and 19, God is not man that he should lie, or a son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said, and will he not do it? Or has he spoken, and will he not fulfill it? There it is, it's clear. 1 Samuel 15, 29. The glory of Israel, that's God, will not lie or have regret, for he is not a man that he should have regret. Now, the phraseology is translated slightly different in those two passages, change his mind and regret, but the Hebrew is the same word, "nacham," "nacham," however you pronounce it. But it means this, to sigh. That sense of like, I'm going to... Do- that's the idea. That's why it's translated, sometimes some change your mind. You're going to do that and then you go... Yeah? It's the word. Or I've done that and I'm like, that's the idea. He doesn't do that. He's not a man. He doesn't do that. Now, it appears, therefore, that God doesn't do that. Just one problem. There's about 16 examples I've found in the Bible where God does exactly that. Same word. <laughs> Same Hebrew word. So it looks like we've got a theological dilemma on our hands. What are we to do with this? Well, there's something in common about those two references I read to you. What is the common phrase in those two references I read to you? God is not a man. In both of those phrases. None of the other phrases where God sighs, changes his mind, repents, regrets, relents. It's translated in all those ways. It never says that. In these two, it says God is not a man. that He should do that. Now I think that's very, very important and very, very telling. I think it's valid to take from this that the author's intention is for us to know that God does not change his mind or sigh in the way that we do, in the way that man does. We change our mind, we regret, we repent, we relent due to our own inconsistency, due to our own lack of knowledge. I'll do that. Oh, I didn't realize that. Okay, I'll do that. Yeah? Or we'll do that. Ah, I haven't got the money. I won't do that. Yeah? Yeah, That's how man does it. God is not a man that he should sire. God never changes his mind in this way. So in what way does God change his mind? I'm going to just read you a few references and hopefully it bring him some glory. There are three examples that simply refer to the sadness of God felt over the things that happened. It's just a reference to his sadness. So for example, when... Genesis, the Lord saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth. It grieved him to his heart. It's just a sense of the sorrow of God. The reality of God's heart impacted in time and space through the sin of man. He may be transcendent, but he's certainly not removed. He may be transcendent, but he's certainly not cold. There's a sorrow, that genuine sorrow that gripped his heart. In that moment. In that period of history. (sighs) See this is. We've got to make sure that we allow the revelation of scripture. To really teach us about God. I regret that I have made Saul king. God says. For he's turned back from following me. And has not performed my commandments. The Lord regretted he had made Saul king over Israel. Those last two references. Exist either side. Of the first reference I I read, where it says God does not change His mind, the author is clearly utterly inconsistent within himself within one paragraph. Or he's trying to help us understand something on a richer level—that God is able at the same time to be able to uphold His sovereign purpose and yet feel in reality the sadness of when someone falls. Of when someone messes up, of when someone turns their back. This is this is this is the richness. It's mysterious, but you can either say it's too mysterious to me, I'm gonna just go for one or the other, or you can say, I'm gonna go biblical here. Embrace the mystery and enter into this incredible richness of God's nature and God's character. All the other references, well I'm gonna you know, there's so many I could read you. Bar one involved God changing from a posture of judgment to a posture of mercy. It's very important. So the famous one from Exodus. God says to Moses, leave me alone. I want to destroy the Israelites. Moses implored the Lord. And he brings his argument to God and says, if, if, if you do that, then Egypt are going to say, God couldn't, God couldn't finish what he started. He brings his argument in intercession. He says, God, this is not your purpose. Also, you covenanted to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that you, you're going to bring their seed through. So he argues out with God. And then we are told, verse 14 of Exodus 32, the Lord relented from the disaster. There's that word, the Lord sighed. The Lord went, ah, okay. <laughs> What's going on there is is that Moses is bringing to God his consistency. He's actually arguing, but you are utterly consistent. To destroy them now would be to change your mind in a manlike way. You can't do that. He's prevailing upon God with his consistency. Prevailing upon God with his, he knows God's heart is to show mercy. God prefers to show mercy than judgment. God and his justice will show judgment, but his preference is to show mercy. And so he appeals before him and God relents. It's extraordinary. It's there. It's there. You can can make it into something abstract if you want to, but it's there. Listen to this one. Ahab, evil king, said to Elijah, godly prophet, have you found me, O my enemy? Elijah answered, I've found you. You've sold yourself to do what's evil in the sight of the Lord. Behold, he starts prophesying, I will bring disaster upon you. I will utterly burn you up and will cut off from Ahab every male bond or free in Israel. When Ahab heard those words, he tore his clothes and put sackcloth on his flesh and fasted and lay in sackcloth and went about dejectedly. And the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite saying, Have you seen how Ahab has humbled himself before me? Because he's humbled himself before me. (sighs) Ah. I will not bring the disaster in his days, but in his son's days, I will bring the disaster upon his house. But what would happen if his sons walked humbly? God would go, God's heart is moved by people's response, his heart is moved. He is sovereign, is transcendent, is able to keep his purpose on absolute course. I totally believe that. And yet somehow I also believe his heart is moved by the earnest prayers and humility of his people. And we can move his heart to mercy, even when he's decided upon judgment. Here's one. In those days Hezekiah became sick and was at the point of death. And Isaiah the prophet, the son of Amos, came to him and says, Thus says the Lord, Set your house in order. You shall die. You shall not recover. Then Hezekiah turned his face to the wall and prayed to the Lord and said, "Please, O oh Lord, remember. I've walked before you in faithfulness and with a whole heart. I've done what's good in your sight." And Hezekiah wept bitterly. Then the word of the Lord came to Isaiah. Go and say to Hezekiah, <laughs> "Thus says the Lord God, the God of David your father. I've heard your prayer. I've seen your tears. I'll add fifteen years to your life." You got a problem with that? You got a problem with the book, okay? <laughs> it's dynamic. It's dynamic. It's, it's just, oh. He's a, he's a father who loves to be prevailed upon by his children. My youngest will go on and on and on. And part of me thinks, this is amazing if you would just convert this into your prayer life. This... We've got revival on our hands. This is amazing. But at the moment, it's about teddy bears and money and stuff. It's, it's, it's not, it's a bit annoying, really. But I'm like, what a quality. We don't want to kill this quality. We just want to get it sanctified, you know. There's something about, she can prevail upon me. She, you know, oh, she's there again. She's still going on, please, daddy, can I have that teddy? And then you're I go, you know what? Like, you're doing my head in. Fine. Now, I'm sure it's more holy than that. But there's something where God says, you know what? Why did Jesus use a parable of a widow and a judge? And the judge says, that, he says, I, I'm going to do this before she beats me down. It's a pugilistic, a boxing term. I want to do this before she beats me down with her asking. Why did Jesus use that? Not because God's anything like that judge. But because sometimes when you've got to pray through, you've got to have that about you where you go, do you know what? I'm going for this. And if I fall flat on my face, I'm falling flat on my face. But rather that than hold back the whole time. Because I know that God is a God who can be moved by our heartfelt prayer. And relates to us in time and space. I've got more to say, but I think I've said enough. Hopefully you're sensing that, that dynamic. I'll leave you with one very short sentence here from Andrew Murray, who was... He wrote a book called With Christ in the School of Prayer. Thoughts on our training for the Ministry of Intercession. It's a very simple quote. And then we'd do what we came here to do, which is pray. Let Christians awake and hear the message. Your prayer can obtain what otherwise will be withheld, can accomplish what otherwise remains undone. I'll say that again. Let Christians awake. Right, so wake up, okay. wake up, it's really important. There's a slumber, there's a slumber on the church in this nation. Wake up, hear the message. Your prayer can obtain what otherwise will be withheld, can accomplish what otherwise remains undone. Because God in his sovereignty has ordained that his people will pray and believe and that he will act. Amen.